Hello and welcome to Interlink, the podcast series under the Center for New Economic Studies, OP Jindal Global University. Interlink aims to break down barriers between various social, political, and economic issues and have nuanced discussions about the intersections between them. Under Interlink, we have initiated a new sub-series, Kitabo Ka Karwa, wherein we hold intriguing conversations with authors on their recently published books, offering our listeners an enriching insight into the topic. I am Arjavi Shah, a research analyst at the Center and a major in economics from the Jindal School of Liberal Arts and Humanities. I'm also joined by my fellow research assistant, Bilkis Kalkatawala, who is currently a second year pursuing economics and finance from Ashoka University. In today's episode, we are conducting a talk around the recently published book, India's Economy, From Nehru to Modi, A Brief History by Professor Pulaprik Balakrishnan. Um, our guest for today is Professor Pulaprik Balakrishnan. Professor Balakrishnan is currently a professor of economics at Ashoka University and has held appointments at the University of Oxford, the Indian Statistical Institute and the Indian Institute of Management. His published work spans the inflationary process in the Indian economy, productivity growth in manufacturing, the macroeconomics of the transition to a market economy in Ukraine, agricultural evolution in Kerala and the economic growth in India. He has written in professional journals and is the author of books like Pricing and Inflation in India and the Economic Growth in India, History and Prospect. He has served as the country economist for Ukraine at the World Bank and has been a consultant to the Indian International Labour Organization, the Reserve Bank of India and the United Nations Development Programme. With that, we welcome you to the podcast, Professor. Thank you so much for taking out the time and joining us today. Thank you very much, uh, Bilkis and Arjavi. Thank you. Uh, so to begin with, Professor, our first question to you is, what motivated you to choose this topic, which deals with traversing India's economy from the Nehruvian era to the present under the leadership of Narendra Modi? Why do you think this expansionary timeline is crucial to make conclusions about our economy? Well, uh, the principal motivation for writing this book was the uh, um, 76th anniversary of Indian independence in August of this year, when India completed 75 years as an independent entity. And so I thought it would be appropriate to take stock of how we have performed as an economy uh, not in some kind of a general way or from some kind of standard criteria used to assess economies internationally, uh, but uh, particularly in terms of uh, the criterion uh, um, uh, of what was promised in 1947, what was seen in 1947 as the goal of democracy uh, the ending of colonial rule uh, and the um, charting of an independent course for India. So that was a first um, a reason, uh, the, the 75th anniversary or the ending of 75 years or conclusion of 75 years of India as an independent entity. Uh, and also the fact that I thought uh, uh, the public discourse tends to get um, uh, highly politicized and uh, many of the descriptions of how the economy has fared in the past or even, is, even how it is faring today tends to be presented from the point of view of political agendas, to be very frank. And I thought it was important for uh, a thoroughly economistic assessment of how we have performed. And finally, I did feel, uh, I do feel even today as I teach economics in India, there is an inadequate understanding among young people in India about uh, where the economy is today, where did it come from? Uh, and since they don't have a sufficient sense of where, of both, i.e. where did the economy come from, uh, where it is today, I think we are failing them by uh, because it leaves them without any basis to assess how we should do in the future. So it's really written for young people such as yourself uh, and with the hope that it will make you 
uh, a little more familiar with India's past and give you a sufficient background to analyze how we should uh, now design India's uh, immediate future. Right, Professor, that, that sounds great. Um, our next question is, uh, what can the readers expect from the book and uh, what are some of the major aspects of the economy that have been highlighted or are crucial for the understanding of the subject? All right, what the uh, reader can expect is uh, literally uh, uh, in the title of the book, uh, India's Economy from Nehru to Modi, A Brief History. So the reader can expect a fairly, I would say, um, uh, rigorous and balanced. I guess uh, a, a, a rigorous account cannot but be balanced. It is rigorous both in the, in the sense of how theory is used to understand uh, actual developments in the economy, and also in its use of evidence wherever possible, almost at every twist and turn, uh, the story is backed by evidence. So the um, a reader can expect to be given a uh, well-founded, both in terms of theory and empirical evidence, uh, story of the economy. So that's the first thing. Now, what I, I don't remember the term you use, what are the highlights or what are the phases or something to that Not effect, not phases, but what are the main uh, developments in the economy? Yeah, well, I guess the um, uh, reader is presented with a sense of what India's economy looked like in 1947. Uh, uh, talks a tiny bit about the history of India uh, for 200 years prior to 1947, when India was uh, was colonized and its economy was tethered to the interests of the metropolis, which is England. Uh, it then talks about the uh, thinking in the 1950s about what directions the economy should take and the actions undertaken. It discusses the uh, issues that were debated, the, main personalities involved, Nehru everybody knows about. Uh, some of the younger people are not so familiar with the name Prashanto Chandra Mahalanobis, the uh, physicist statistician who led the uh, uh, intellectual input into uh, uh, the strategy to develop India in the early 1950s. Uh, it then talks about the mid-1960s, uh, when India underwent several so-called shocks, but uh, mainly war uh, and uh, wars in 1962-1965 and uh, uh, two years of agricultural uh, drought. Uh, something which is not particularly uncommon these days, but we have a much richer economy now and we are on a much shorter footing as far as agricultural production is concerned we're able to withstand quite easily these shocks, but we were not able to in 1965. And that had a tremendous impact on India, uncertainty which affects private investment, um, uh, uh, strained government finances, uh, and in particular food shortfall, which we were not able to make up through imports, mainly because uh, our balance of payments was severely strained. We had very, very, very little in terms of hard currency res reserves. So I narrate that story and talk about how we got out of it, but principally narrate how uh, a, a very strong political effort was made to make India self-sufficient in food. Uh, and this was achieved very rapidly in a period of uh, well less than a decade maybe in about five to seven years. I'll talk again about the main characters involved, the political personalities, the scientists, and very importantly, the uh, economic mechanisms that really led to uh, India becoming self-sufficient food, which is goes by the term, the Green Revolution. So the Green Revolution is discussed. Uh, at the same time, I discuss a little bit about the policies of Indira Gandhi, which were highly uh, um, influenced by the fluid politics of the time. She was a politician who had to establish her credentials, and I talk a little bit about 
what she did to do that, uh, the impact that had on the economy, not always very positive, sometimes discreetly, distinctly negative. Uh, Don Indira Gandhi certainly had a very major role in the Green Revolution and ensuring that India became self-sufficient in food. I then go on to talk about uh, the Rajiv Gandhi era, which in our uh, discussion before the podcast, uh, one of you mentioned is not sufficiently well known to the public. And I, in a very short section, I discuss it uh, and really try and clarify the issue. Was Rajiv Gandhi purely, uh, you know, charmed or enchanted by technology for its own sake or whether he thought that technology could be leveraged for uh, improving the lives of his countrymen. And I very strongly come around to the side that Rajiv Gandhi uh, did uh, uh, understand the potential of technology to improve the lives of Indians. And I talk about the many missions he set forth when, uh, when he was elected. Uh, what are they, mainly a literacy mission, an oil seeds mission, which tries to increase the production of oil seeds in India, uh, a drinking water mis uh, uh, a mission, uh, uh, and a telecommunications mission, all of which were, uh, which were meant to be driven by technology, about which he had a pretty good understanding. Uh, and I talk about the extent to that which that was achieved. And finally, I speak very little about, uh, I speak a little about how uh, the economy certainly viewed Rajiv Gandhi's period very um, favorably. And I thought of it as a time when India had a great future and how even without a great increase in public investment, the economy boomed. And that was mainly due to two reasons. One uh, 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 in which Rajiv Gandhi didn't have a major hand, which is the buoyancy given to the economy by the Green Revolution, which still seemed to have an impact. Agriculture grew very fast in that period. But uh, se uh, a second factor for which Rajiv Gandhi had a very uh, uh, in this surge in private investment, um, which undoubtedly came about because the private sector was very felt very positively about Rajiv Gandhi's role in uh, energizing the economy. Uh, so that is what I really have to say about the Rajiv Gandhi era. Uh, I next go on to look up at the uh, period after 1991. Uh, I, I describe it and I describe some of the economics and politics so of the so-called reforms, which is how one, the, the, the period, uh, the economic policy of the early 90s, in particular 1991, is uh, described. I look at some of the consequences and I do say yes. Uh, one of the significant uh, uh, achievements, so to speak, of the reforms is that uh, India has not faced a balance of payments crisis after 1991. And this is, this is very significant because there was a crisis in 1991 which may have uh, uh, activated the reforms, made it necessary for India to reform. Uh, and this crisis was a balance of payments crisis. Yeah, it's believed that India had uh, import reserves only for about uh, uh, two weeks. Yeah, and India had to pawn its gold uh, to um, the Bank of England, etc., to get, to get reserves. Now uh, that problem seems to have been handled pretty well, and reforms did have contributed to that undoubtedly. But the, the, it comes with a caveat. Uh, uh, this ability of India to uh, finance its balance of payments has come about mainly because uh, uh, of so-called capital inflows. It hasn't come about because India's balance of trade or the current account has improved dramatically. So uh, that is, uh, that is uh, unlike what was promised, it was believed that India's exports would boom, India would become very competitive, uh, none of that seems to have happened because the current account has mostly uh, remained uh, in uh, deficit and at times almost as high as it was in 1991. But our uh, reserves position is much, much better, mainly because of capital inflows. Um, and we've been able to avert balance of payments crisis. Uh, but finally, I would say one of the... Uh, 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 disappointment of the reforms of 1991 
is that the sector to which uh, uh, all attention was paid, which is the manufacturing sector, yeah, uh, uh, in terms of what I call the trade and industrial policy reforms, the trade reforms mainly being in terms of the lowering of the tariff rate and the um, uh, elimination of licensing for manufacturing investment. Uh, uh, this has not led to a rise in the share of manufacturing in the economy. It's remained almost static at about 16% of GDP. Uh, and we know that both the governments uh, that have been in power over the past 15 years, namely the UPA and the NDA, or in particular the NDA under Mr. Narendra Modi, uh, have tried to raise the uh, or, or, or have stated that their goal is to have manufacturing rise to about 25% of the economy. Uh, but that hasn't happened. Uh, and I also give some reasons for why that may be so. Finally, um, uh, I, I look at the period from 2014, uh, uh, which is significant for the fact that in about 30 years, it was the first time that we uh, in India have a government where uh, with a single party majority, i.e. a single party has majority and therefore some of the tensions of coalition uh, governments uh, do not exist. And the government of the day has substantial freedom to uh, chart its own uh, policy yeah, without any facing any political constraints. Uh, and uh, everybody expected quite a lot uh, from uh, uh, the uh, leadership of Narendra Modi because he had been fairly successful. At least he's been noted to, he was a noticed chief minister. He, he came to be the chief minister of Gujarat on four occasions, uh, which is almost a record. Uh, 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 I think only Naveen Patnaik of Odisha uh, has done better than that. I don't know. Uh, but whatever it is, it is an important uh, record. Um, but uh, Narendra Modi's time in government has not been so impressive. In fact, the section in the book is called Impetus, sorry, Momentum Lost, right? That's what the section is called for India after 2014. And uh, uh, it can be very directly traced to the, uh, 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 to the role of demonetization of November 2016. Uh, the rate of growth of the economy begins to slide after that. Uh, and uh, so I've been speaking for a long time and I think uh, now we need to go on to the next question. But let me just say the last part of this uh, narrative is looks at COVID. And uh, I, I, I have spent a little more, uh, I, I, I do two things when I, I speak of the lessons learned from COVID and the main lesson that we have learned is how poor the infrastructure in India is, the health infrastructure, excuse me. And I produce there or present there the results of some work I have done elsewhere, uh, which is looking at trying to explain mortality deaths in terms of the uh, um, expenditure on health in relation to uh, GDP. And, and I do show that that's quite a powerful expansion variable. Uh, I interstate variation, sorry, um, uh, let me explain. It's not so sufficiently well known. Uh, uh, that the there is an in Indian interstate variation mortality from COVID. Some states have done better than others or worse than others. And I, I point out that this can be explained in terms of the share of health spending, public health spending, excuse me, spending by government on health in relation to GDP. Uh, and, and therefore I say that the uh, main lesson seems to be that uh, we would need much more uh, uh, better uh, and, and uh, more significant in terms of resources, but once again, better in terms of functioning uh, public involvement in the health sector of the economy. So that's uh, roughly uh, a narrative of, uh, of, of the, the, the period. And the final, the final chapter uh, is uh, looking at where India uh, is now in terms of the promises made in 19... Uh, 47, which was that, what, which is in terms of what may be broadly called human development. And I look at how India performs on human development indicators vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world uh, um, and China. And we are behind both China and the rest of the world. 
some in, on some indicators substantially, and then I, uh, I, but then I finally I talk about three things: the great regional variation in India on human development. Some states do much better than others, and this is a puzzle and needs to be explained. After all, India is under one. Uh, one government, but uh, performance seems to vary. Sorry, I'm not putting this way. India is not under one government. India, ha uh, all of India's states uh, are ruled, uh, uh, are, are governed by the same laws, but are ruled by different governments. Uh, so if they, uh, they are uh, uh, governed by the same laws, why should development indicators be so diverse or disparate? And I explained that. Finally, I'd look at two uh, uh, particular aspects of development in India, the gender, and you can see that the women have fared much worse than men uh, as far as development concerned. And finally, I look at caste and I show that in terms of the most basic uh, indicators of income and uh, and other form aspects of development, which really represented by social indicators, the scheduled caste do worse than the general population. And that's that's roughly where I end my book. Um, thank you, Professor. I think that's a very interesting narrative of how you decided to describe the multitude of milestones that we've had as a nation. So uh, the next question we have for you is about the introductory chapter of your book. You provide a generic description of how we should view development, beginning with Nehru's view. To what extent is this an indicator of how we should view our performance in 2022 and the collective vision of human development? So let me make a small uh, correction to what you've said, RGB, in terms of a description of what I do uh, in ch chapter one of my book. Uh, uh, yes, I do d discuss generic uh, 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 descriptions of development. Uh, but uh, uh, what I present there and what you uh, 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 first is what Nehru uh, stated uh, 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 were the goals of democracy and independence in India. I didn't say that that is a description of development, but I did say that what Nehru spoke about the ending of poverty and ignorance and disease and the creation of institutions so that every man and woman in India uh, can lead a fulfilling life. Uh, those are his exact words. Tie in with certain generic descriptions of development uh, and um, notably with Sen's description of development as development is expansion of freedoms. But I do also point out that Sen's description of the development as an expansion of freedoms, which, as you very nicely put, is a generic description of development and certainly a description that I, uh, I uh, uh, endorse very strongly, uh, I would think is underpinned by Isaiah Berlin's view of uh, uh, what is called positive freedom. Uh, the kind of the, the freedom that allows individuals to lead the kind of life that they have reason to value. Yeah, uh, 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 if you recall, yeah, I, I talk about uh, uh, um, Berlin's distinction between negative and positive freedom, and give some examples from uh, India and Afghanistan about uh, uh, positive and negative freedom, uh, and then I. Uh, yeah, then I go on to develop a uh, sense view of development, saying that sense view of development can be seen as being underpinned by uh, Berlin's view of what positive freedom is. So that's, yeah, yeah, so that's uh, that, that's the first thing that I want to say. Okay, and the, now, um, now, uh, your second question that's a more difficult one. Do we in India have a collective view of development? That's the expression that you use. I don't know, RJV, and I'm happy to engage in a discussion with you, giving you a little more time to one more option to clarify what you said or say differently. Uh, do we have a collective view of development? I don't know. Um, um, though, of course, a lot of political parties do use the word development, right? There's a coalition. There was a coalition in Maharashtra till very recently, which called itself the Mahavikas Aghari, yeah, uh, which can actually be translated into grand development, Mahavikas, not just any old Vikas. 
uh, and then of course we have uh, Narendra Modi's uh, uh, yeah Sabka Vikas yeah that is three parts now Sabka Sabka Vikas and Sabka Vishwas but there was something earlier or but so Vikas is used uh, a lot uh, in India but I'm not sure we have a collective understanding of it and you put it very well I think we should have a collective uh, understanding of it. We haven't worked towards one, and I think social scientists uh, in general and economists in particular are to blame to some extent because they haven't tried to come out with uh, um, try getting people to agree on how we should view this uh, Vikas, yeah, so how we should view development. Right, uh, Professor, uh, moving on to a topic that I found personally very interesting, which was um, education and we see that there is an abysmally low level of public spending on education in India with the share of its GDP being lower than most other regional groupings. So uh, do you think there is a class bias involved and to what extent does it appear to have been a matter of priorities in public policy? Yeah, I think when you look at the education scene, uh, especially uh, schooling and the uh, government or the public sector involvement in schooling, you can't help but conclude that there's a class bias. And in fact, I'm sure I used the expression in my book in the final chapter, I actually use the word class bias. Uh, I say it's very difficult not to conclude that there was a class bias, uh, uh, mainly in terms of spending uh, public spending on education in general, and especially in the uh, ratio of public spending on higher education to public spending on lower education. This ratio is the highest in India in comparison to the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, that, that data is given in chapter five. I don't know, but it's certainly given in my earlier book. So yes, that I would say that is correct. Uh, we did invest in uh, IITs and IIMs at a time when we were poor and it was very impressive that we did so, um, but we didn't invest enough in schooling. Uh, and given the uh, severe backlog uh, in investment in schooling, um, I think that was a major oversight. And one of the failings of the Nehru era, otherwise, which otherwise is extremely impressive, whatever may be the assessments of the Nehru era today, you ha may have noticed the graph in, in uh, chapter two, which shows you the trajectory of the economy and the uh, tremendous acceleration in the 1950s uh, in the Nehru era but unfortunately we didn't invest enough in human development basically health and education and that has had a long-term impact on the economy so much so that it's going to be very difficult to shake it off uh, it, it has also impacted um, the form of democracy that we have in india if you have an illiterate a population uh, uh, or a population that's just struggling to survive somehow it's not in a position uh, to Discipline political parties, which then go on to do what they feel like, you know, uh, spend public money on uh, for private purposes, for all good purposes, or for special interests, or pursue uh, identity politics of various kinds, uh, linguistic, caste, religion. And we, we have all that because we don't have a sufficiently educated population. Uh, the precise manner in which an educated population can uh, um, discipline political parties is not very obvious, it's not very clear. Uh, but what is obvious, I think, is that they do have an impact in the more in parts of the world which have democracy and more educated populations. Uh, political parties don't get away with the kind of uh, actions they do in, in India. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think there's a class bias, uh, without doubt, and I think uh, non-investing in schooling has had a, 
uh, long-term impact on the rate of growth in India, which not even really liberalization per se has been able to make a difference to. Um, so I think in the extension of what you talked about right now and the conversation about how the collective vision of human development or the lack thereof um, for a comparative assessment of India's progress in terms of poverty and inequality. We see that Indians had an income that was about one third of the global uh, per capita income and close to a fifth of the population was in extreme poverty. It has only gotten worse currently when we draw a comparison between India and China, given their structure and the economic level, China seems to fare way better than India in most indicators. Uh, more often than uh, not, we see that this comparison is dismissed. If so, why? And additionally, worsening inequality and rushing poverty seem to be matters of allocation of resources and public uh, policy decisions by the current government. So to what extent is this correct and why are more conversations not made about this? Now, um, I just want to, if I may, uh, add a clarification to what you said. You're obviously referring to my data and poverty in India vis-a-vis -vis poverty in China and the rest of the world. I just want to point out that unfortunately the poverty data in that table is for the year 2011-12 because that is the only year, that is the last year of official uh, um, uh, poverty estimates for India. We haven't had a consumption survey after that and you can have con continuous uh, data on uh, poverty only if you have a consumption survey. And the last consumption survey was done in 11-12. So we we do need poverty for a more recent date. Uh, and I'm sure poverty levels, are, these are, by the way, extremely low-drawn low poverty lines. But uh, there is no doubt that the uh, estimated poverty in India today will be much lower than it shows in the, than 21%, uh, 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 which is the figure in my uh, my the data that I've given? It's probably around the uh, about ten percent or something, which is an estimate made by uh, the present uh, uh, chairman of the Prime Minister's economic advisory council. Uh, so yes, poverty levels are low now. Uh, China, uh, wh wh why is this not part of the discourse? I mean, I can't answer that, Ajay. I don't know. I mean, that's not for me to. Uh, I mean, I. Uh, uh, I mean. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but that's because um, uh, uh, um, we're not drawing the right lessons from China. We, I think we are driven, uh, or, or, or some commentators are driven by a form of envy that China is doing so much better than India. But we are not making enough of an effort, doing better than India on the economy front, but we're not making enough of, a, of an effort to, uh, to uh, um, understand why China is doing better than India. Since you brought up this comparison, it's very important that you did. Um, Chinese GDP per capita uh, was no higher than India's GDP per capita until 1980. It's after 1980 that there is this divergence uh, between India and China in terms of economic performance. And um, uh, uh, yeah, so I think it's important to understand. But I just want to since we've had so much of discussion about uh, uh, about human development and all the rest of it. Uh, I just wish to say that uh, human development itself is not enough. And in any case, it's not clear to me that China has had human development because it's not clear what human development means without civil liberties. You need civil liberties, human. But China has invested in human capital, which is schooling and health, especially schooling. Uh, so, which is slightly different from human development because human development also does mean people can lead the kind of lives they value and if you don't have civil liberties, you can't lead the kind of life. China is an authoritative, authoritarian state, but it has invested in human capital very substantially and has done much better than India and much of which was already probably in place by 1980 when it begins to diverge from India, right? Uh, so that's the first thing that I want to say. So uh, the second thing that I want to say, yeah, and it's all tied up in certain sense. Why doesn't this, this, uh, this come into the discussion? Because I think um, 
uh, uh, the more vocal elements in this discourse are not reading the China experience correctly. They tend to read the China experience in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, um, authoritarianism, which makes it, uh, makes it possible for, uh, uh, for, um, for uh, China to, Chinese government to implement certain policies more effectively but uh, fails to realize the underpinnings of it and the that, that the underpinnings of it are really in terms of a superior human capital uh, endowment of the Chinese population. So that's really what happened. So that is the answer to, uh, to your question, Arjabi, about India-China. I don't know if I've answered all aspects of it, but and you can, yeah. Uh, so, so but, but let me now say something, sorry, uh, a, a final thing that I want to say on that. Um, at the same time, human development alone is not enough for for uh, uh, for uh, growth. You know, China has done many things right. It has built infrastructure, and its public sector, I believe, works much more efficiently than India's. What is insufficiently recognized is that the public sector uh, is is uh, very important in China. I mean, uh, uh, accounts for a large. Uh, proportion of the total economy. China is not as privatized as people like to imagine. Uh, the public sector, uh, so China has firstly uh, uh, invested in the infrastructure very well and, and is able to work this infrastructure much more efficiently than India. And we just give an example, China's ports are believed to be vastly more efficient than India's ports. And ports are very important for uh, exports, for instance, uh, and we know from data such as turnaround time in ports and the rest of it, uh, the cost of um, moving things through ports, uh, uh, India is a high cost economy, reflecting the fact that its infrastructure is neither adequate nor worked efficiently uh, in India. So uh, I think it's important to read the right lessons from China. Uh, and, and to see that, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we, we, we uh, I'll do some of the things China did to really become very successful. Um, right, Professor. Um, so as we've come to see that there has been a significant amount of research now happening on gender parity and the labor force participation rate, especially when it comes to women. And uh, you sort of touched upon this in your book and tied these issues also with discussions on caste. Uh, so could you elaborate a little more on that? And to what extent does the book deals with these issues and the sort of growing disparities when it comes to gender and caste? Um, I, I would say, yeah, I, I must say that uh, I, I do refer to these aspects in the final chapter, but I don't, uh, uh, I don't develop an, a, a very substantial argument. I provide some data and I do speak about gender inequality. Uh, I think uh, the main uh, reason for gender inequality in India is uh, uh, cultural or what is referred to, if you wish, as uh, patriarchy, and we're not able to get rid of it. And uh, we're not able, one of the ways you could break through that to some extent is by education, not just education of the girl child, but also uh, education in the sense of conscientization mm -hmm. of men, uh, um, yeah, to recognize that patriarchy is something which is, uh, you know, uh, a kind of, um, what's the right word, a uh, root of gender inequality and that it has no place in a democracy. Uh, we have done nothing in that direction uh, and which is one of the main reasons why labor force participation rate, which you talked about, is so low. A female labor force participation is so low. And it's not sufficiently well recognized that uh, if female labor force participation rate is higher, uh, one would believe, one would expect that uh, um, production and therefore total output and also the state of the economy would be better, right? That we have more goods and services. Certainly the female labor force participation in East Asia is better than in India. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the female labor force participation 
even in Bangladesh is better than that of India. So um, uh, India has not given enough attention to it. One is, of course, uh, attitudes, uh, patriarchy, uh, and the fact that patriarchy has not been recognized sufficiently in the public discourse, and there's not enough of a pushback against that in public policy in various ways, including conscientization of women, uh, which should be undertaken by public money, if you ask me. But also that we don't haven't provided the kind of infrastructure, and that infrastructure would largely have to be public uh, infrastructure, which uh, allows women to come out of their houses and uh, work in, you know, in, in uh, uh, units that generate uh, income, in, in, uh, industrial activity, so to speak. Uh, I, I uh, uh, was distraught in hearing about uh, uh, parts of uh, uh, Delhi, in fact, a suburb of Burari, where apparently women have to wade through sewage uh, women and men, but men, you know, it's a little easier for men than for women, have to wade through sewage to get from their houses to the factories. I mean, this is just, uh, and women just don't go out to work then. And they'd rather starve or live on very low levels of income to have, then have their dignity violated on a daily basis. And this has to do with infrastructure not being good enough. So these things go, should go together. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of, raising the level of confidence of women, both through greater conscientization, uh, better human development, greater, better health and uh, um, education, but also the provision of public inf uh, infrastructure, which makes it easier for women, well-lit streets, you know, uh, st uh, streets that are not flooded with uh, sewage, so that women have to wade through it. Uh, so. Exactly as for the economy as a whole, and I talked about China, China didn't just uh, increase the human capital level of its population, but also built infrastructure, ports and roads, and electricity, and housing, and all the rest of it. None of which we have done on that scale. But equally for women, it's not enough to have all the uh, soft infrastructure, uh, but you also need the public, uh, the public infrastructure that makes it easier for women to go out of their houses feel safe, transportation, safe transportation, for which public transportation, I, I, I guess, is really the answer, right? It's in public transport that women feel more confident and safe. And if they don't feel confident and safe outside their homes, they won't go out to work. Then naturally, the female labor force participation will be low. And it will be wrong just to blame cultural factors. There's also the infrastructure factor that is involved. So that's the first thing. The other is about caste, and I guess much of all of this uh, works equally for caste, uh, though maybe less so on the physical infrastructure side of things, health and education, better public schools, uh, public schools, I think are probably the most important. And also uh, maybe in some parts of the country, uh, a greater effective, uh, uh, what can I say, uh, uh, public eye um, uh, uh, directed towards uh, uh, whether children of the uh, lowest castes are in any way discriminated in schools. I think there must be some greater consciousness of that kind in the, in the public authority and public authority should take attention to see that uh, uh, um, children from the lowest castes in India do receive the education that they deserve. Uh, and I, 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 which I think is really the answer uh, to to now, now look at the sense capability uh, approach that that way is wonderful, right? You know, uh, the if, if you take the capability approach, is a term we didn't use, but I is used in my book quite a lot. If you remember, capabilities are the freedoms people enjoy to undertake the kind of functions they value. So capability is a kind of catch-all expression for that for freedom. Huh? Now, uh, once capabilities are equalized, then identity cannot be an unequalizing factor. Sure, I mean, cultural capital could matter to some extent. I mean, since we are in Northern India, I might say, I mean, uh, 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 you might think that being Khandani really makes a difference, but does it? If my capabilities are as good as yours, it matters very little. You see my point? 
So the beauty of, 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 of Sen's approach is that it really gives you a very wonderful handle on all of this. Once you equalize capabilities, then cultural capital will have very, very, very little impact. Very little impact. And I think we, we in India, I think that's the ultimate lesson. We in India have done very little to equalize capability. Ultimately, that is what it is, right? The lower caste do not have the same set of capabilities than the upper caste have. Uh, uh, women don't have the same set of capabilities that, uh, that, the, uh, that um, uh, men have. Once you equalize capabilities across gender and across social groups, as in caste, and also, of course, also across religious groups, uh, then, uh, you know, then nothing else will matter. Yeah. Thank you, Professor. That was a very interesting insight. So having talked about greater conscientization and equalizing capabilities, what are some ways in which we can move away from not only focusing on quantitative goals, like achieving a $5 trillion economy, and reorient our tasks to enable something greater? Well, you know the answer, that, but well, partly by having conversations like this, partly by uh, our undergraduates, by, by, by professors thinking intelligently by the way they teach economics, by partly by undergraduates such as yourself having conversations with your peers and with your professors and at home, with your legislators. How many of you know who your MLA is? So Bilkis, now when you come back from Calcutta, I'll ask you who your MLA is, all right? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> as first you find out his or her name, then you uh, can go and, uh, uh, yeah, um, um, you know, get an appointment with, uh, with that person and ask about the schools in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, you live in Calcutta, so you're not lucky to have, I forget the lady's name, uh, Ishrat Jahan, is that the name of this wonderful MP from one of the border districts of, of Bengal? She's a TMC MP, so she will not be your MLA, unfortunately, <laughs> or MP. But uh, people like that, you go and talk to them. You try and you know speak to people about uh, about the kind of society we live in. Uh, this is a long haul. This is not going to happen because I, some one reality we are uh, we have to face is, and since you're economic students, you should be able to answer that, understand this very well. Uh, uh, just as firms in an economy uh, require regulation, political parties also need regulation, right? Why do you assume, why do we assume that in a, in a Westminster style uh, uh, democracy where you have political parties which call the shots, uh, there could always be tacit collusion between political parties that, and they look after just their own welfare or welfare of their dynasties rather than the welfare of the public. That's a very difficult one. You know, that's what I spoke about disciplining political parties and how only an educated um, population can even come close to achieving that. Um, so yeah, uh, um, um, moving away, uh, yeah, I mean, it can only come about if some political parties take on take that responsibility. Uh, I, I I don't see too many parties taking on that responsibility very, op very openly. So I think that leaves a huge responsibility on people like myself who teach economics and to an extent on people like yourselves who are learning economics today to not see it through very kind of narrow, uh, yeah, Tunnels, but to see the economy part of society and see how social factors impinge upon economic yeah, uh, development and the performance of the economy. And a simple example that I gave, suppose, suppose uh, India's uh, female labor force participation was the same as that of uh, uh, South Korea. Uh, even on present levels of productivity, our income would be just so much higher which means we'll have so much more to have better sewerage, uh, better roads, better electricity, right? Uh, yeah, and hopefully be able to do something with these garbage mountains around Delhi, you know. Uh, yeah, so 
we, we need to talk about the real things. And I think uh, universities are the places where that should be happening. In that sense, universities have a huge responsibility. And I don't know whether we are succeeding in that sufficiently. We should work harder. Right. You do the right thing. These are some of the ways we have these conversations uh, by, by talking to one another, you know, by disseminating some of our ideas about India uh, and uh, in particular, what kind of economy we should have. I mean, uh, uh, um, I, I, maybe I should have said this at the very beginning of the uh, of the conversation, uh, but uh, my idea of writing this book was also to ask the question, uh, 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 what is the kind of economy that we should have? And that's how I finished the book, right? I call it the journey to a valuable economy. Uh, the word valuable is used in the sense that economy has value to us only if it takes care of our needs, right? That we have good schools and hospitals and, uh, you know, good places to amuse ourselves in the evening. And we don't have to wade through sewage to get to our place of work or uh, have to go drive past, uh, you know, um, smelly garbage mountains, which we do every time we come to arrive from Jahangirpuri, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's why we need an economy. And just by setting quantitative targets, we can never be assured that we will have the kind of economy that we want to. We'll have to work towards it. And the beginning of that is the kind of conversation that you and I are having. Right, right, Professor. Um, so with that, we it brings us to an extremely insightful and thought-provoking conversation. And I feel like we were able to discuss almost every aspect of the book as much as possible through the short conversation. And uh, we'd like to thank you for taking out the time and joining us today for this discussion on your book. And I'm sure the or the listeners will take a, take away a lot from it. Thank, thank you. you so much. Professor. Thank you very much, uh, Aljavi and Bilkis. And all the best. And uh, my congratulations is a very, uh, I'm really happy.